The book of John, chapter 13. Starting in verse 31, Jesus has been in the upper room talking with his, um, his uh, disciples after the Lord's Supper, telling them what is to come. And this is what he says. When he, that is Judas Iscariot, had gone out, Jesus said to his disciples, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. May God bless the reading of this powerful word. You may be seated. Well, three homecoming king nominees did the unexpected at a high school in Tennessee last month. Jesse Cooper... Drew Gibbs and Zeke Grissom were nominated to be uh, uh, homecoming kings at uh, Community High School's basketball homecoming. Prior to the event, though, they did something very unusual. They all agreed that the winner of the homecoming king honor would turn their honor over to a beloved junior, an underclassman. And that underclassman was a handicapped kid named Scott Maloney. Scott apparently suffers from a neurological disorder that inhibits learning and speech. It's called Williams Syndrome. So when the votes were tallied, Jesse Cooper won the popular vote. But when the official announcement was given, the principal told the crowd that the nominee, what the nominees had decided to do And then he called Scott Maloney's name. (laughs) Teacher Liz Gassaway was right there with Scott and said Scott's eyes got really big when he called called his name out. And the crowd erupted with a standing ovation to the gift that they had given to him. For the nominees for homecoming decided to bestow on this young man, an honor that he would have never expected and no one else would have either. It was an unexpected relational gift called love. We're talking about stewardship these days here at Redeemer and what it means to steward things. And, and stewardship's often connected with things like money. I've even talked about time. We've talked about using spiritual gifts. But there is a stewardship of something we often don't think about. And that's the stewardship of relationships with each other, especially as Christians. Indeed, um, uh, in church, there are always opportunities to steward relationship and to even be challenged in relationship. And we often forget that you and I are gifts to one another. You're a gift to him, and she's a gift to you, and we're a gift to one another. And we forget that sometimes when we do church together. We take each other for granted. But in John chapter 13, we're going to look at an important question of 
What does it mean to steward relationships? What does that look like in the church in particular among fellow Christians? And what is really that unexpected way that we're supposed to love that, that Jesus keeps turning around on us in ways we just didn't expect in, in his teaching? Well, our answer is going to come out of here in John 13 where uh, Jesus is going to give us some really unexpected perspective on what it means to love one another. In fact, there are kind of three things, an, an outline, if you will, for how he teaches us these unexpected things about love, and he, and he, and he teaches us un, unexpected turns in relationship, unexpected reality in relationship, and an unexpected call in relationship. So let's first look at the unexpected turn in relationship. This starts in verse 31 of our text. This is what Jesus uh, is going on here. It says, when he had gone out, and he's talk, the he there they're talking about is Judas Iscariot, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And here's uh, John's way of often articulating Jesus's sometimes mystical, even uh, circular thoughts about how things work with him. And what's really interesting about this is this is a pivotal moment in Jesus' life. I mean pivotal. It is literally the night before he's going to die on the cross. And what's even more interesting is for several chapters he's explained to these guys what it means to be in relationship with him, what it means to follow him. And now he dives into just the real core of relationship with one another as Christians as we learn how to do relationship with him. But here's the unexpected turn that I'm talking about relationship. Literally right before our text is when Judas Iscariot is fingered subtly, but albeit it's fingered anyway, by Jesus as the one who would betray him. In front of all the disciples, Jesus says, the one who eats with me, that's the one who will end up betraying me. So, uh, Judas, when this happens, ends up leaving, and Jesus knows where he's going. He's going out to plan with the, the Jewish leaders how they're going to frame Jesus and, and get him uh, into a mock trial, a kangaroo court, even with um, Pontius Pilate, the Romans, and eventually get him crucified and killed off. Jesus knows this is going to happen. And unexpected turn from our point of view happens right before this text. And then right after this text, you know what happens? It's where Peter says, hey, Jesus, you know what? I'm such a committed disciple. I'm such a swell guy that I'm going to be with you no matter what happens. I'll be here to the end with you. And Jesus says, oh, no, 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 Peter, before this night's up, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to deny me three times. So there is another unexpected turn in relationship. You're thinking, well, how does this work all together in what Jesus is saying in our text? Jesus, in other words, comes to a place of recognizing he's going to be betrayed and denied. And you've got to wonder, how would you respond if you knew it was coming? If you knew you were going to be betrayed, thrown under the bus, denied even by your closest friend, how would you respond? I know how I would respond. I'd say, man, you think you're going to get me? Well, do unto others before they do unto you. I'm going to get you first. That's how my flesh thinks. 
But Jesus goes in a completely different way, a way you're not expecting. (laughs) And it's this. He tells his disciples about glory that's coming. In verse 31 and 32, he says, At this time in history, this unique place in his time, back then in the first century, the Son of Man is glorified. Uh, God the Father is glorified in the Son. And God the Father will also glorify the Son in himself as the Father. Now, Jesus says he's, God's going to be glorified in this. And, and, and we've got to ask what's so shocking about this. Remember, Jesus is saying God is going to be glorified in the worst human acts you could do. I mean, wouldn't you agree that if somebody betrays you, that actually is one of the worst things somebody could do? If someone denies they even know you, are like, I don't know who he is. In fact, three times, by the third time, he's cursing about, that is, Peter's cursing about how he doesn't know Jesus. And Jesus is saying, God, I, as God the Son, and God the Father, even God the Holy Spirit, will be glorified in these worst forms of human sin. Jesus knows what's coming. It's the cross. He's even predicted it multiple times in his ministry. He knows he'll be arrested. There'll be that mock trial. And worst of all, there'll be a brutal crucifixion. In other words, Jesus will be glorified by dying on a cross. The Son of God, the ultimate Savior of the world, the Lord of all, is glorified by doing the cruelest form of capital punishment in that time. I might even add unjustly. Jesus is glorified in something that's so shameful that no one would ever admit in that time that one of their family members or friends had been crucified. We don't talk about that. And yet Jesus says, here's glory about to happen. Why is he saying this? Why is he after this idea of glory and a cross? Well, it's because of this. He understood that God has the power to turn what seems to be a loss into a glorious win. Think about what happened at the cross for you and for me. Jesus forgives our sin through the cross. He defeats Satan's power in sin at the cross. And then through the resurrection, Jesus defeats the effects of sin. That is, the the penalty of death at his resurrection. In other words, the cross is God's great ironic win. Now, many of us here are familiar with this idea. And, but you need to realize, again, that a cross and a resurrection is not what first century Jews or Gentiles would have considered a win by any kind of king or savior. Like us, you know what they wanted in that time? They wanted someone strong who could make promises of a better life and come through. They want a leader with pedigree who would get her done even if he had to use his power. They wanted a politician. But Jesus is born into a manger. He grows up in a lower middle class family in a backwoods community in Nazareth of all places. And then after he lives his life of service and giving even poverty, he dies the number one form of shame in its time, the cross. Now I've got to ask you, Why did Jesus do this? What was his purpose in doing this? Well, fundamentally, you've got to understand from the rest of Scripture, what was read this morning from Romans 5, that it's because of reconciliation. God, through Christ, wanted to reconcile with enemies. 
enemies. Have you ever thought of that? This is what's unique about our God. Our God doesn't reach out to friends and say, hey, man, we're on the same team. Come over here. You know those people over there that they're not, we're not with them? Come over here. We're all together, right? No. It's the whole world against Christ in our sin. And what does Jesus do? Jesus leans into the sin in order to reconcile us to God. Why would he go through that, especially a brutal death on a cross, for you and for me? Well, the short answer is this. Love. Love. Love is the ultimate motivation for the God in history who actually leans into our pushing against him. This is what's interesting about what Jesus does. Is it is an unexpected motivation of manifesting itself in an unexpected gift to you and to me. What this means is when you and I are running from God, he's running after us to reconcile us. When you and I are turning away from him in our sin, he is moving towards us in love still. Do you believe that? The reason why this is unexpected is we live in a world that says basically this, Hey, if you want to get love, you got to earn love. We talked about this in our link class this morning. Kind of the world's, um, the world's math goes like this. I love God, then he loves me. Okay? And it goes in that order. But here's what the gospel says. God loves you, then we love God in that order. God is always the initiator of love towards you, especially through Christ. And that is an unexpected turn to an unexpected turn in the midst of what Jesus is going through. He's saying, hey man, Peter, you're going to deny me, but I'm going to die for you. That brings us to the next thing then. Where, where, we, not, where we hit a more interesting and unexpected thing in verse 33 Jesus says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Where I am going, you cannot come. Here's where it gets really interesting. Jesus is talking about glory, and the disciples are thinking, glory. (laughs) Yeah, Jesus is going to be our great politician. He's going to usher in um, his whole new kingdom it's going to be really cool. We're going to have Club Med right here in Judea. And we get to be a part of that. We'll be at his right hand in the power, making decisions. Yeah, man. And now of all this, Jesus says, guess what? I'm leaving. I'm leaving. They think they're finally going to get everything they ever hoped for. And Jesus says, guess what, fellas? I'm out of here. And at this point, the guys are going, wait a minute, aren't you going to stick around for your inauguration? Are you, like, sticking it to us, Lord? And Jesus is saying, no, I'm not sticking it to you. In fact, we know he's not because he says little children. You know, that is just one of those forms of, of address that's very gentle, very kind. It's what a father gives to a child. He cares for them deep, deep, deeply, And then he says something 
very, un, very strange. He says, you will seek me, but I'm going away. Now, of course, he's talking about his ascension. After his death and resurrection, he is ascended after spending 40 days with his disciples. They can't go to heaven with him in their present state, their human state, like I am today. Now, there is something interesting about what Jesus says in verse 33 that's even better. Check this. He told them that the non-believing Jews, he had told the non-believing Jews this very same thing, that they would not be able to follow him either. But here's what's interesting about the difference between what he told the Jews and what he's telling these believing Jews. He's telling them that while you won't go to heaven with me yet, you will seek me, but you will find me. Here is the unexpected search that shows up in our text. Jesus is saying, you will search for me, but you will find me not in my bodily form in this world. You will find me in the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. In fact, he goes on to talk for chapters about the Holy Spirit coming to communicate the gospel and reveal truth about God to him. This is another unexpected reality with Jesus. We often find ourselves in an unexpected search. Even a search for love. In every circumstance of life, we feel our need. And what happens when things get really hard in life? We start to wonder, why is all this hard stuff happening to me? Sometimes we think, is it because I sinned? Some of us are like super conscientious and like really worried about sin. It might be because of sin. Sometimes it's not, though. God allows things to happen in our lives, even difficult things. And I don't really know why. I really don't. God knows. He has a purpose for it. But the beautiful thing in that is Jesus wants us to seek out his love in that. Lord, I want to be loved even when I'm in pain. Loved by you. This is an extraordinary path that not many people walk. In fact, this past week, during the week of Jubilee, uh, I actually refrained from internet surfing for sports information I had no idea what was happening with the wolf pack in, our, in our, uh, our recruiting, which is just really important, you know? Don't you agree? <laughs> so I was referring from that, and it was amazing how I had all this time, and I actually noticed really important things in life. It felt strange enough, but there was a twist for me this past week. Many of you know my dad, Jerry Faulkner, who's a member here, took a dive fit physically, and he actually flirted with death. Uh, many of you have experienced the loss of a parent, and you know what goes with that even in life, and uh, I was facing that reality myself. I'm pleased to say God has answered our prayers and given him uh, some mercy, and we have him for a little while longer. But I found that while I was facing this, man, I really wanted to surf the net. I really wanted to escape in oblivion and nothing. And yet, while I faced the reality that my dad might die, I started to think a little bit about the resurrection of Jesus. And I started to think about, you know, what's different about my God is he's been through death and he made it to the other side alive. I can know this Jesus who's alive personally, who made it all the way through death. And that's my hope for my dad, who's, who's a follower of Jesus. I hope for me is hope for you if you follow Jesus. That's the kind of stuff Jesus wants us to seek out, even in unexpected events in life and turns. 
Now in our text, Jesus turns to an even more unexpected thing. In the face of denial and betrayal, in the face of the cross and of his own suffering, Jesus lays out an unexpected call on the relation, to the relationships among Christians. Look at verse 34, 35. Famous text from Jesus. Here it is. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus uh, really thinks this is important, that we love one another. He repeats it multiple times in John after this. It's that important to him, and this is no surprise. I mean, love is important to everybody, isn't it? I mean, we talk about it in our culture and our music, and even other religions talk about love. It is a high value for, for us. Jesus himself emphasized how love was just supreme when he said the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The call to love is nothing new in this world, even in different religions. But here is where Jesus stands apart. Jesus says, I have a new command for you. He gives us a new command. What does he mean by new? Well, we aren't just supposed to love one another just as anybody else would in our culture. No, we have a unique standard. Love as Jesus loved. Now, what this means is when it comes to fellow Christians, and he's talking to Christians here in particular, loving each other in particular, we are called to love each other with the distinct love of Christ. The love of Christ that is kind. The love of Christ that is compassionate. Even faithful. When somebody's not being very faithful to us. And the key is that ultimately the kind of love that Jesus gives is a giving love. It is a giving love, not a love with a hook. We've talked about that in the past. Remember, love with a hook goes like this. Hey, I love you if you give me something back. That's what the world says. You know what that really is, right? That's a business transaction love. That's fine out in the business world. But here in church, it's I give you love as a free gift because Jesus loved me freely. We are supposed to love each other. And that means we're supposed to love each other when we have different lifestyles. We're just supposed to love each other when we have different races and backgrounds and cultural uh, moorings. And yes, different personalities, extroverts, you got to like the introverts. Introverts, you got to like the extroverts, even love. Yes, it even means Christians who are NC State fans are supposed to love UNC fans. Christians who are UNC fans are supposed to love Duke fans. I tell you, it's madness. (laughs) This is why Jesus emphasizes so much. Because it doesn't come naturally for you and for me. We love those who love us. We love those who make us feel good about ourselves. We love those who we think will actually, sometime around the bend, give us something that we need. But Jesus loves with a very different love. It's the giving love that says, 
Here is a gift to you. Enjoy. It's a free gift. What does it mean in daily living to love this way? Because love is, after all, an overused word. What I'm saying is, what does Christ-like love look like in the daily living of life? Well, I did a word study this week. Here I am. i got to be my Bible scholar self at points. And I did a word study on the word for one another. Uh, And this is what I came up with. Seven practical ways you can love with Christ-like love through the one another's of the New Testament. Here's a first practical way you can love. And the first is this. Christ loved us by welcoming us. What do I mean? Jesus eagerly met complete strangers and invited them to follow him. Think of Nathaniel and John. He goes up to him. This is a man without guile. And he warmly welcomes him. Jesus warmly reached out to tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. Jesus wasn't afraid of secondhand sin. You know what secondhand sin is? Secondhand smoke. If you're around a smoker, they get that smoke on you and start to smell like smoke. You're like, man, I don't want to be around that. Well, sometimes we're afraid to be around sinners. Realizing, of course, that our sin is wafting off of us as well. Jesus calls us instead to see the dignity of every person, especially our brothers in Christ, and that we are to welcome one another. In fact, in Paul's letter, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. How's that, fellas? Like that? Holy kiss. Yeah, man. Yeah, I'm not kissing you. No. Uh-uh. Now, that's a cultural thing. What we would say is greet each other with a warm handshake, a welcome, an eye-to-eye, man, I'm glad to see you. That's the kind of warmth and engagement we have with other believers in particular. It's really a way to say, welcome to my life. You belong to me. I belong to you. That's welcoming like Christ did you and me into his life. Second thing, Christ loved us by appreciating holy differences. See, Jesus not only welcomed the unexpected into his world, but he also reached out across cultures. You think of the Syrophoenician woman. He loved the Samaritan woman in John 4. You know, guys, it's pretty radical when a a first century male rabbi would talk to any woman, and then for him to even talk to someone who is a furner, you know, furner, that's what we say in North Carolina, right? Or to talk to this woman of the night, who the woman at the well was. Are you kidding me? A holy man, a holy rabbi talking to that? That's crazy in that culture. You see, Jesus went way past culture to engage people Why did he do this? Because he didn't let cultural differences get in the way of holy relationship. We all live in different cultural matrices. Every one of us here have our own little culture in our own little personal worlds. Man, you don't want to come in my matrix. It's crazy sometimes. You all have your own little matrix. 
Then your family has a matrix. Then the community, like Indian Trail, Wingate University, Charlotte, each has its own cult subcultural matrices. Then there's American cultural matrices. And we have all these assumptions of how life should be. And then when we're hanging out together, our assumptions bump into each other. And you know what, what Paul says in Romans 14 and 15 about those bumping assumptions that are even holy differences? He says, do not judge one another. Live in harmony. Do not judge one another, but live in harmony. That means people with different personalities, uh, different kinds of music tastes, different cultural practices can actually come together through Christ. Folks, I am not, what, the biggest problem in the church today is tribalism. Tribalism. Hey, we got our group of people, you all, you know, you just, we, we're not connected to you. When in point of fact, if somebody calls Jesus Lord, you are connected. We're on the same team. It might have different forms, different angles, but we belong to one another. Don't you understand we're going to spend eternity in heaven together? There's no space for tribalism in the church. I mean, think about how much we have in common. As believers, we have a common new birth and being born again. We have a common destiny in heaven. And most of all, we have a common Lord Jesus who is the beauty of our life, the hope of our life, the one who meets us and loves us so richly, every one of us who calls on his name. If you got all that in common, why are you going to let silly cultural differences get in between you? That brings us to the third thing. Christ loves us by telling us the truth, the gospel truth. Think about this. Peter uh, told Jesus, Jesus had to tell Peter, rather, some hard truths. Remember Peter and Jesus? Jesus uh, Peter comes up with a profound statement when Jesus asks, who do you think I am? He says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, hey, man, that didn't come from just anybody. That came from God the Father revealing it to you. And then Jesus starts to reveal how he's supposed to die at the hands of people and, and, and go to the cross and die and ultimately be resurrected. And Peter wouldn't have any of that. Peter says, well, now, now, whoa, now, Jesus, you're not going to die. No, 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 uh-uh. No, that's not going to happen. You are supposed to be a politician king. That's what you're supposed to be. You can't die. That's not the way the story's supposed to go. It's like Star Wars. Luke wins in the end. Well, Jesus rebukes Peter with the truth. He said, get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to you? Get behind me, Satan. Jesus tells the truth, Peter. Peter, of course, later on says it again. He says, I'll never deny you. We just re heard about that earlier. And then you know what happens with Jesus? Jesus sees Peter denying him in the courtyard where Jesus is being prosecuted. Peter's eyes and Jesus' eyes meet face to face. Jesus takes, I mean, Peter takes off running because he's just ashamed of what has happened. And when Jesus dies and is resurrected, he tells the women who find him, go tell Peter. That I'm alive. Jesus is reaching out to Peter in a profound way. 
He's speaking the truth to him about who he is. In the same way, we're supposed to speak truth to one another. Sometimes we can even admonish one another, meaning we redirect one another, because Christ wants us to walk together in life. Fourth thing Christ does is Christ loves us by caring for us. I mean, think of the countless times Jesus stopped in his ministry, and he loved people. I mean, he had these crowds of thousands. He didn't have his entourage around him saying, hey, I haven't got time for you. I've got to get to my next appointment. He stops and he loves these people in their tracks. In the same way, 1 Corinthians 12 says, we should care for one another. We should bear one another's burdens, as Galatians 6 says. Encourage one another. Build one another up, as Ephesians 4 says. When was the last time you said an encouraging word to your brother who is low? When was the last time you were there for someone, at least in the ministry of presence, when their world is dark? Fifth, Christ loved us by making peace with us. Now, peacemaking is the most underrated part of doing life together in church. The reality is, when Christians get together, we actually get in conflicts. But here's the gospel. Jesus leaned into conflict. He didn't give us the silent treatment or his rage. He went to the cross so that we could be forgiven. In the same way, Ephesians 4 says, be patient with one another. James 5 Confess your sins to one another. Not because you'll get forgiveness through the person you commit, you confess to, but because that's part of the healing process of me saying, man, I did you wrong. And of course, the one that stands out the most of all the one another's is in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Think of how Jesus forgave Peter for throwing him under the bus. If he can do that, don't you think you can forgive because you've been forgiven for throwing Jesus under the bus too? At Redeemer, we practice Matthew 18. If you've got a problem with someone, don't go to Sally. Don't go to your grandma. Don't go to anybody else. Go to the person you've got a problem with. Work it out. One-on-one first. That's what Jesus calls us to. We lean into conflict. See it as an opportunity for God's grace to move in us, for forgiveness to show up, for reconciliation to happen. I think at 45, after years of trying to be nice to everybody, I've realized, hey, my best friends are the ones I've been in a nasty fight with. And Jesus redeemed us together. Let's keep going. Six, Jesus loved us by doing good to us, even those who treated him poorly. In the same way, we're called to do good to one another, not repay evil for evil. Not only this, we're to spur one another to love and good deeds, to think outside the box and spur each other to a unique kind of love. You know what the opposite uh, of, of repaying evil for evil is? It's grace. Giving people that's a gift that's the opposite of what they deserve. Next time somebody hurts you, pray that God would give you a way to love them by grace. 
Man, that'll change everything about that relationship. Seventh and finally, Christ loved us by serving us. He did one of the lowliest things one could do at that time. And in John 13, right before all this, he washed people's feet. You know what that's like in our time, right? That's like washing people's toilets. Cleaning their toilets. That's what it's like in that time. Think of this. The king of kings rules by washing feet. In Scripture, we are called to serve one another. We are to attend to brothers who have a real need. And we go to those especially who have physical needs and attend to those physical needs the best we can. For as 1 John 3 says, those who don't love their brothers in practical ways do not have the love of God in them. So, These are seven ways that Christ has loved you and me and how we can love fellow believers more richly. Which one of these that we have seen today do you need to pray about and work through? Which one do you need to explore with the Lord so you might love more meaningfully in your life? The gospel is Christ puts you in each other's lives. God put you in my life, me in your life. We're in each other's lives. That's his providential hand. It is no accident we're together that we cross paths and, yeah, even butt heads sometimes. Every day we have opportunities to love anew and reflect Christ's glory in our lives. If you dare love the way Jesus has loved you, there will be at least three effects, real briefly. The first is this, the world's going to notice. It was in our text, verse 35. The world's going to say, what is that? People love that way? Really? Is that possible? See, the way Jesus loves is not normal in our world. It's unexpected. But when you see it, it's glorious. It's beautiful. The second effect of loving this way will be that as you follow Jesus' way of love, and you need to listen carefully to this, Ready? As you say, Lord, I want to love this way, you know what's going to happen? Jesus will love you so much, he'll show you how you're not loving this way. One of the hardest things we do as Christians is to say, Lord, I want to obey your commandments. And we go and we try to do it, and we should. But then it's revealed, oh, I really don't, I'm really kind of shallow in my love. So you go and Jesus shows you he will love you. As you struggle with love. And then you will go and give a little bit more love and show, ooh, I'm just still not very mature in my love. Then he'll show you more of his love and then you'll take another step further. And before you know it, you're loving in radically different ways in time that you never would have loved. That is growth. Growth. You're abounding in love more and more, as First Thessalonians says. That's the second effect of what will happen. Third and final effect is Christ's love will have uh, this effect on us, and this is the key to any love. (laughs) I hate this. You will give your rights up more. Marriage is sanctification. Ask anyone who's married. In marriage, as in any close relationship, particularly with fellow Christians who you're going to spend eternity with, You will find 
that the more you have to love, the more Jesus calls you to love, like he did, the more you have to give up your rights. It's no longer, I deserve this. I really do. It's what I deserve. It's actually more and more, I give up. I give up my rights. I give up my rights so you can have something better. So you can have something good. When was the last time you gave up your rights for somebody else? In Christian love. That's, man, the ultimate. And you know why I can say that? Because that's what Jesus did for you. He gave up his right to live. He gave up his right to glory in this world as the king of kings Dying and bleeding on a cross for you in love. So you could be reconciled with God. So I could be reconciled with God. That's love. And it only happened when he gave up his rights. A few weeks back, there was a long-distance race in Navarre, Spain. A Spanish runner, Ivan Fernandez Anaya was in second place behind the Olympic bronze medalist and Kenyan, Abel Mutai. Anayo noticed the Kenyan, running, Kenyan runner stopping well before the end and finish line of the race. Mutai apparently thought he had completed the race, and there were all kind of Spaniards around him saying, you need to run, another... 30 yards, keep going. He was looking at him, thought, he thought, I finished, I'm done with the race. Rather than speeding past Mutai, Anaya ran up to him, took his arm, and guided Mutai ahead of himself to the finish line. Anaya said, I did what I had to do. He was the rightful winner. Jesus calls us to love one another as he has loved us. He gave up his rights to lead us to the finish line of eternal life in relationship with the God of the universe. Now it's our turn. Steward the gift of relationships that God has given you with fellow Christians. Give up your rights. You might just find that you've gained more eternal life in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that um, we are called to this incredibly difficult and challenging work of love. It's too big for us. And um, I mean, I pray for all of us, Lord, as we come to you wanting to love, knowing that that is our goal, but it is really hard. We pray that you would lead us to a different kind of love, Lord, not settling for the world's kind of love, but really pursuing the Christ-like love that says, I will give up my rights and do all these things for the better of another. You did it for us, Lord. Lead us as a body to, lead, to, to actually love this way as well. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand with us if you're able as we close our time of worship with a song.